moment. Uh, the S&P ASX 200 in Sydney is currently at 1.25% at 7,033. The Nikkei 225 just opened down 1.5% already at 25,684. Uh, just updated to 25,735. Uh, Hang Seng futures uh, looking to an open of around half a percent higher. Uh, let's look at the weather. Mainly cloudy, cool this morning. Sunny intervals this afternoon. The maximum temperatures around 19 degrees. Moderate northerly winds becoming east to northeasterly, strengthening gradually. The outlook sunny periods in the next couple of days. Mainly cloudy with one or two rain patches early next week. Currently at 16 Celsius, 74% relative humidity. This is James Ross. I'll see you tomorrow morning uh, for Money Talk once more at 8 o'clock. Back chat is next after the news. And here are the headlines with Barry. A pharmacist denies there's a crisis in the supply of drugs to ease COVID symptoms and has called for better education so people won't stockpile medication. Iris Chang, the president of the Practicing Pharmacists Association, says people need to realise that popular brands, such as paracetamol, aren't the only solution. She urged people not to panic if a product wasn't on the shelf. We're trying to explain to the consumer to be smart during the pandemic. The best kind of uh, medicines uh, to use to treat the symptoms of COVID is not over the counter, it's actually behind the counter. And so uh, definitely we're educating the public that paracetamol with a particular brand is not going to be the only solution to help them with their symptoms. And to have a false security to believe that they have been able to purchase the big brands in their hands will actually help them during the course of the COVID infection is actually not really sufficient. The opening session of the U.S. House of Representatives has revealed divisions among Republicans. Kevin McCarthy has led Republicans in the chamber for the past four years and was expected to become Speaker now the party has a majority following the midterm elections. But Mr McCarthy failed in two initial ballots to secure enough votes. The BBC's Will Grant explains why some Republicans are rejecting him. The majority of them form something called the Freedom Caucus. They are very much aligned with President Trump, his vision of what these buildings behind me, the Senate and the House, mean, i.e. that they are riddled with established interests and lobbyists and that he wanted to drain the swamp, you remember that rhetoric. So this is really their criticism of Mr McCarthy in that regard, that they believe he's too much part of the establishment and too beholden to lobbyists' interests. What that means in terms of who they would settle on is simply kind of too many machinations away at this stage to know. The founder of the failed cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, has appeared in court in New York and pleaded not guilty to fraud charges. He's accused of stealing billions of dollars from FTX to prop up another of his businesses. The BBC's Michelle Fleury is in New York. Sam Bankman-Fried arrived at Manhattan Federal Court for the second time since he was extradited from the Bahamas. If found guilty, he faces up to 115 years in prison. In multiple interviews before his arrest, including with the BBC, Mr Bankman-Fried denied looting customers' money, but admitted he wasn't as competent as he thought. Meanwhile, two senior FTX executives, Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang, have pleaded guilty to fraud charges, and both are cooperating with federal prosecutors. Danish financial institutions say last year was the first ever with no recorded bank robberies. Hold-ups have been falling steadily for the past 20 years. The BBC's Danny Eberhardt has the details. In the year 2000, there were over 200 bank robberies in Denmark, nearly one per business day. That's been dropping steadily, falling below 10 annually in recent years. And now zero. A finance workers' union hailed this as nothing short of amazing. 
The reasons are many. Better alarms and camera surveillance, fewer bank branches, but also moves towards a cashless society, partly linked to the pandemic. Denmark's central bank says cash was used for just 12% of payments in 2021. So bank branches have less to loot. The Brazilian football icon Pelé has been laid to rest in Santos, the city where he spent most of his life. In a private ceremony attended by family members, Pelé's coffin was placed in his tomb at the ecumenical necropolis overlooking the city. The BBC's Katie Watson is in Santos. Yesterday, during the wake, it was a moment of reflection. Today has been um, a day of carnivalesque proportions. People have been on the streets dancing samba, chanting for Pelé, uh, waving flags with their number 10 shirt that he made so famous. I mean, there's, a, uh, there's been a, a real sense of celebration and of remembering the, the most famous name here in Brazil. You know, you speak to people here about Pelé and everyone feels united about their, their love for him. The Supreme Court in Iran has upheld two death sentences and ordered retrials for three others in connection with the killing of a member of the Basij paramilitary during anti-government protests. The death sentences against three of those accused were overturned, the court said, because of defects in the process. Prosecutors say the Basij member was stripped naked and killed during protests two months ago. And finally, the Saudi football club Al Nasser is laying on a lavish reception at its stadium in Riyadh to present the Portuguese record goalscorer Ronaldo to its supporters. At a news conference, Ronaldo said his work in Europe was done and he hoped to break new records. In Saudi Arabia, several media outlets have reported that Ronaldo's salary could be more than 160 million US dollars a year, making him the highest paid footballer in history. And there'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning. This is Back Chat for Wednesday, January 4th. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. On today's Back Chat, we're looking at Hong Kong's economic outlook for the new year. The city has just endured a very challenging year, thanks in no small part due to momentum-stifling anti-COVID measures. But hopes are high that the SAR will turn the corner as restrictions are dropped and the border to the mainland reopens. However, major headwinds remain, with global recession a virtual certainty still, and inflation a major concern. After 9.15 a.m., we are looking into local marine pollution after a study found that up to 26 billion microplastic particles are being discharged into the ocean by sewage treatment facilities every day. All right, uh, back chat at the beginning of the year. We're kicking off with the best guests. Uh, we're welcoming in the studio at Broadcast House, Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, great to have you on. Uh, we're also uh, dialing in. We've got Vera Yun, who's a lecturer at the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong. Good morning, Ms. Yun. Good morning. Happy morning. New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome back to the show. And uh, George Cotherly, a pillar of Hong Kong, born in the POW war camps, uh, during World War II, he is the Vice Chairman of the International Chamber of Commerce. Good morning, George Cotherly. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Good morning. All right. Good morning, uh, Vera, you and you're, you're the economist. Uh, tell us, what, uh, what, what, is your, what is your broad picture, your big picture outlook for the economy of Hong Kong going into next year? Are you feeling up or are you feeling down? Uh, it should be going up, at least, um, for, for the reopening uh, with China, because we would have more consumption. We could expect more mainlanders and Hong Kongers to reside in mainland to come for medical supplies, vaccination, and 
among other things, they would purchase and also with this good for the tourism industry as well as retail, luxury, and food and beverages. Um, however, there's some uncertainty remains, and that could affect um, how much economic rebound we could have. First is um, whether there would be a dramatic increase in infection rate that is so high that um, scare people from going out and consume. The other thing is whether other countries would close their border from Hong Kong uh, because of this, and that this could reduce the rebounding effect. Right. So, so Miss um, Yoon, you just mentioned that uh, the reopening of the mainland border will be a boost to uh, the local economy. But, but, but uh, um, in terms of a number of jobs uh, it will create and business it will generate, uh, how much uh, of a real impact will it have on uh, on Hong Kong? Well, Hong Kong actually left behind the whole world in 2022. So I look at the IMF. Uh, forecast in October of 2022, Hong Kong was actually ranked second last in advanced economies in terms of economic growth um, predicted in 2022. The last one is Macau. So um, Macau and Hong Kong are the only ones that have negative growth in 2022. And all the other advanced economies, they have positive growth. So we left behind by about 5% because we are like uh, estimated to be negative 3.2% by the Hong Kong government. And other economies, they are growing at a rate of about 2.8%. So it's about 6% GDP growth that we are lagging behind. So if we are making it up, then um, that could be a pretty large number. However, because we opened late, and then it gives an image to the rest of the world that, you know, Hong Kong is not so welcoming. So there's an intangible effect of reputation loss that is harder to quantify. And also it signals to the world that um, we could have some permanent change in terms of policies. And so it may, you know, drive away business and talents already. They have already relocated and they may not come back. So that could... Um, overestimate the effect of um, the gain in business and also talent and, and economic growth in terms of this. Yeah, Mark Michelson, you're running a CEO forum. You're in constant conversation with, with these people. Uh, you know, when, when Vera Yuen talks about labor shortages and, and maybe not being able to attract talent, certainly it was a problem last year. What, what, what's the buzz on the, uh, the CEO level? Yeah, it continues to be a problem. We're, get, we're getting a few more mainlanders in, which, which help, which help fill some of the gap. But it's not clear what's going to happen. And what's, what's complicating is it's good news, first of all, that border is opening up because one of Hong Kong's main sell points is access to the mainland, right, for, for, for everyone, for people within Hong Kong and for people coming in and out of Hong Kong. So that's important. But how much? And what we have now is something akin to the, the, the trade tit for tat where you're uh, applying sanctions. So mm. now various countries are applying sanctions on travelers from, from Hong Kong and from, from uh, the rest of China and uh, vice versa. And how much effect this is going to have on tourism, on attitudes, on investors and others and on employees, just mm. the people you were talking about. So that's, that's the, that's one of the unanswered questions at this point. Um, so what, companies are doing, and I am just was with a couple of executives yesterday for, in financial services, 
Chinese in part, ethnic Chinese, and they're going to just spend more time out of Hong Kong, mm-hmm. more than they would have anyway. They travel a lot, but just the uncertainties of what's going to happen with managing COVID, with some of the other developments, you're going to be spending more time. doesn't mean they're leaving Hong Kong, but it still means less. And, you know, how much impact that has on the economy, I don't know. But it'll make some investors cautious as well, at least in the short term. I mean, you're talking about the COVID uh, restrictions that have been imposed on a lot of places, uh, been imposed on China. And for the first time, I think we've seen they've just automatically lumped in Hong Kong with that as well. I've got a daughter who's supposed to fly tonight. We're waiting for her PCR test come back. But I mean, that feels a little different. Are we, are we really a gateway between anymore? Or are, we, are we just being lumped in with China now? Well, this is the U.S. has done this for a while, as you, as yeah, you probably know. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, the U.S. in terms of of uh, connecting Hong Kong and China is basically the same. That's political as much as it is anything else. Yes, to some extent, and certainly Japan. Japan's Japan's been a little bit more flexible. Other places, not so much. I don't know what the EU is going to do too. It looks like they're going to impose sanctions. This might be short term. So if it's short term, not much of an impact. It's still good news that we're opening up. But in terms of forecasts, I'll just give a number. We're, we're forecasting 2.7% growth next year after, after negative growth, as the professor said uh, this year. I mean, which is quite okay. It's not, it's not kind it's of okay. 5, 6, 7% it's that okay. we've had in the past. Uh, George Codley, uh, you're with the International Chamber of Commerce. What, what do you think of this, this idea that is Hong Kong being kind of lumped in with China and losing out on some opportunities? Or... Are we still going to be an international entrepot? Well, I think uh, you've got to look at it from two perspectives. One is government to government, and the other one is individual. Um, and I think individual businessmen, foreign businessmen, uh, don't lump Hong Kong together with China yet. Um, it depends on how much merging they see going on. But I think at the moment, uh, they would look at Hong Kong generally as they did before. It's the gateway to China. Uh, it's the place to come um, to to start off and continue on your business with China. So I'm not overly worried by uh, the, the government attitudes. I mean, going back many, many years, this has always been the case. Uh, businessmen tend to have a different viewpoint, uh, more in line with how they want to see things than their governments. And they, they tend to uh, go against government views sometimes on, on issues like this. And, and that, well, how about Hong Kong as a, as a financial and legal center? Uh, I think the, the International Chamber of Commerce has done a lot of work in the space of arbitration and trying to make Hong Kong more attractive on that front. Uh, how much of that kind of corporate headquarters, corporate uh, activity are we still going to be able to attract? Is that, is that going to be part of the, the upside story? Well, I, one, one hopes that people who have uh, temporarily left have only temporarily left. Um, I mean, the, Hong Kong ought to have a good uh, uh, position as an arbitration centre. I think that's the Hong Kong government certainly working very hard on this, and we're certainly very keen on this um, because I think the um, uh, our, our rule of law, our legal system, is well recognised internationally. People feel very comfortable. That's why many people set up companies in Hong Kong is that they can sign their key contracts here and be uh, comfortable that uh, they will be properly adjudicated. Um, I think uh, until we see situations where there are surprising results in legal cases, people will still, I think, continue on their faith with the Hong Kong legal system. Uh, just, Just to support what George says, 
in terms of individual executives, they generally look at Hong Kong as as pretty strong in these areas, relatively speaking, even if it's even if not quite what it was. Uh, two or three years ago, in terms of rule of law, in terms of flows of information, you look around the region, still pretty good. But, you know, just judging from our group, and we're only an indication, I guess, a lot of people have moved away. Mm-hmm. If they haven't moved away completely, they've moved away part of their their companies. And sometimes they haven't replaced those executives, even in Asia, anywhere, mm-hmm. let alone in Singapore. A lot of those aren't going to come back. Some will, but but some won't, you know, what, what kind of impact that'll have. But, you know, the longer it lasts and the last of three years, uh, companies and individuals find other things to do. There's a vacuum and they fill it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, IPOs took a bit of a beating last year. And, you know, Hong Kong was really competing in that space. Uh, Vera Yun, what, what's your take on Hong Kong as a financial center, that in that sector of the business? Well, Hong Kong is increasingly important for, China, for, for the whole of China as its financial center to you know, get a hold of um, foreign exchanges and also to raise funds for many of the initiatives like R&D um, and, and things like that. So I, I guess it's still the positioning of Hong Kong that is for foreign business to tap into the mainland Chinese market because as um, Mark and George said, you know, it's more uh, about the Confidence and trust in the common law system, in the legal system, is the institutions that uh, the Western world they are used to. Mm-hmm. So um, Hong Kong would play that role. So I, I'm just thinking um, for foreign investors who still want to access um, the mainland China's market, they they would be attracted from the Hong Kong. That is dependent on you know the mainland China's growth. So in in the past few years, it had not so. Um, not so much grow, uh, but it's still like 3.2%. That is not bad. So it's more a cyclical effect. So if mainland China's economy is doing well and Hong Kong's economy is more correlated with the mainland China's economy than before, so Hong Kong would also be uh, benefit from this. So, but uh, the downside would be the geopolitical tensions between China and the US, which is a more structural factor. So, um, you know, if there's kind of sanction and then tariff and all these things, you don't know how they would view Hong Kong in terms of policy, how they would change it, whether they still view Hong Kong as a more autonomous and independent entity from the mainland China or it's more alike and becoming like China. So I think this is more like structural factor in the long term that affects whether Hong Kong would be, you know, would sustain itself to be an international financial center. Yeah, so, so there's the, the financial center. You talk about structural changes. I've got a, a Facebook uh, comment here from Henry Young. Uh, just to remind people at the beginning of the year, uh, when I'm on the show especially, if you are on the Facebook page, I'll say your full name. But if you send an email, I just say your first name because I figure if you're, if you're already on the Facebook page, you've already gone public. Uh, Henry Young, he's got a very long post, so I'm going to summarize some of the, the key points here. Uh, he thinks things are progressing steadily but sees some of the obstacles such as labor shortage employees and companies bringing us back to structural issues. Uh, supply chain issues, you know, he's uh, he, he sees brighter days ahead, but 
looking for wider application of automation IT to solve some of those, and then he comes back to the labor issues, which is what I want to focus on. Uh, are we seeing a structural problem? Because a lot of, uh, you know, we're hearing a lot of companies are finding it difficult to hire right now. They would like to expand, which of course would add to our GDP numbers and growth, but they can't get the staff. Um, is there a structural problem on that front that we're experiencing in Hong Kong that's going to be a drag on the economy this year, Vera? from, uh, you know, the CE and also the senior government officials. They, they make it, you know, something to snatch talent, um, using their word to create a new version of Hong Kong talent engaged. So competing talent is an issue for Hong Kong right now because for companies, you, you need a talent pool that is uh, large enough for them to source human resources and to expand business. So that is an... I think it's a short-term to intermediate-term constraint on Hong Kong growth in terms of that. So it depends on how well they could um, get talents back um, for the business. So I think this is also one constraining factor on how well Hong Kong's economy can grow in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, in the circles we run, people are more concerned about... Uh, you know, top level uh, talent and bringing headquarters and things. But I mean, you know, just down on the street front, you see, I still see a lot of closed shop fronts, you know, in Central, Shenguan, these places. But right next to a closed shop will be a business with like, we are hiring for these six positions, waiter, waiter's manager, and they can't get the staff. I mean, is it, Mark, is that, uh, you know, is is there a drag at that that other end, the lower end of the, the lady? Yeah, the, there seems to be. That's not, it's not my area of, 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 of expertise other than you know than living in Hong Kong and, and seeing it but certainly that is but for companies it is too and part of that for companies is work-life balance as well mm -hmm. even even in Hong Kong work from home what's your working structure going to be it's hard to work for, from home in Hong Kong but at the same time what's going to be attractive to them especially for younger younger people the younger workers those in their 20s 30s and so on who are trying to figure out what to do so what's happening is is an increase from some companies hiring older people 50 mm -hmm. 50 plus to sort of take it not full time but take up certain roles that that they can contribute in a big way and they usually have to pay them not so much and mm -hmm. and you know they can fill in the gaps but it doesn't it doesn't balance completely but sure. are, are we seeing wage inflation at the lower end of the market people that used to get paid 15 20 25,000 a month now they're being expected now they're turning around and saying nah you know start at 25 30 35 you know you can't generalize certainly for many pay 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 demands are going up, but it's not just pay. It's much. It's more than pay. Mm. And again, it's it's partly that to feel comfortable because there are a lot. There are more options. Whether these are longer term or short term options, as Professor Yun said, we're not sure. But at the same time, it's certainly in flux in that area as well, which makes it very difficult for for companies and for businesses, as you just pointed out, local businesses in Hong Kong. And Ms. Yoon was just talking about the uh, talent problem, the difficulty of getting talents to, to come to Hong Kong or, or the shortage of talents in Hong Kong. Um, uh, Mr. Michelson, what have you been hearing? I mean, do people want to come here to work? Well, to some extent, maybe not as much. Part of the problem is, as you know, the the reputation of Hong Kong is not as, as strong as it was, you know, uh, exaggerations about things that are happening uh, and and so on so that's that's part of it and also politically if you come from the US or from parts of Europe there's some pressure especially on some companies and some individuals as well uh, because of of that situation as well you're not banned from coming but there are 
our implications. So it's probably a, a harder choice than it used to be. I'm thinking that that will ease as the travel restrictions ease and as the opportunities appear. But how long that's going to take, not sure. That has to be sorted out. I don't think it's going to be solved in this coming year. Yeah. And, and you know, our, 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 old, our old nemesis, Singapore, has looked very uh, shi- uh, shiny and bright the last couple of years. Uh, a lot of companies move people and headquarters and, and departments down there. Uh, but I hear it's gotten really expensive. It's impossible to find housing for your staff. You want to move down there. Uh, they're not making it easy to get visas anymore, especially if you're an independent operator. You really have to come with a big name behind you. Uh, does that give Hong Kong an opportunity? I, I don't want to say that we're the, we can become the, the cut rate or the <laughs> El Cheapo option, um, but is there an opportunity for Hong Kong to say, hey, you know, we still have some capacity. We still have some, uh, you know, you, you can do things here more nimbly if we can, if we can structure it better. Well, well, it's partly, let me just make a quick comment. It's partly capacity, but it's access to China as well. Yeah. And, you know, assuming that that does open up and we're in the process of doing that, that's really important. And although, you know, it's not just distance, it's, mm. it's attitude too. If you read the Straits Times, there's a lot of it's local. A lot of it's pretty much in the immediate region. Yeah. Whereas Hong Kong thinks both in terms of China and and, and regionally and globally, and which globally. I think is important. Yeah, very good. Yeah, um, I think in in terms of competing with Singapore, I'm not sure whether it's always good to say it's, it's the sole and and the worst enemy of Hong Kong to see Singapore because we already have different positioning. I guess it's because we have uh, more correlation with China, more business with China. And I think state policy could help a lot, like, for example, Wealth Connect and then some swap that, you know, only Hong Kong could do. Uh, that China, I mean, the mainland China has some policy to send their wealth, the private wealth to Hong Kong so that they can access the international market, something like that. And also they're doing this... Um, um, Brennan Bead, um, Teller or something in Hong Kong. So they're more Brennan Bead denominated, um, assets. So, so these kind of business, like only Hong Kong could do and not Singapore. So they are positioning to be more like, you know, Asian, you know, center of, you know, headquarters of, uh, other sorts of business. But for Hong Kong, it's really a lot about the business with, with the mainland China. So on this part, it's not a substitute. It couldn't do this. So it really, it really depends on um, China's economic growth and also their policy of how much they want to attract foreign business and um, how much they want to uh, foreign business to invest into it and how much they intervene into the private sector. Right. George, do we still have that position as like gateway to China? I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like that's really old. And even before COVID, it felt like people were going directly into China. Uh, COVID almost put the barriers back up again. I mean, it almost gave us an opportunity to get to be that gateway again because it was, I, 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 personally, I think we were losing it. But I mean, what's, what's, uh, what's, what's your perspective? I, mean, I, don't, I don't think we lost the gateway. Um, I, I think uh, many, many people, of course, try to go direct. But they often go direct with Hong Kong companies um, to hold their hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I still think Hong Kong companies have uh, a very strong validity in terms of the China market. And I mean, we've been in this game all the way back to 1841. Um, so I don't think anyone has built up the expertise that, that, that we have. Um, so I think our, our position here is, is pretty secure. So the, the problems would be um, the, the, the position 
position of China as a supplier to the world. Um, if that goes down that significantly, that would have an effect on our general business. Um, but I just want to get back to the point of, of uh, employment of people in Hong Kong. Um, I had an interesting experience recently um, trying to hire someone in an administrative position, and it took three rounds before I found somebody. Um, and in those three rounds, not one single applicant was under 50 years old. So there seems to be a hollowing out wow. um, of the younger population. And of course, this may not be quite so important at the moment, but you look 10, 15 years' time, um, there's going to be uh, a, a gap. Um, there will not be the young people coming along that we expected. Yeah, I mean, that, that could have long-term implications. Uh, yeah. I mean, where, where, but how does that hit us? I mean, where does it, is people, people can't establish corporate headquarters here because they can't get the lower and middle level executives. Uh, you know, where, where well, is that I mean, a drag? It'll, 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 it'll affect all businesses. Uh, because if, if, you, if you don't, so, so there's a lack of, there's a lack of people. It's not just the talent side, as you emphasized before, but it's right through all levels of, of, of uh, employment in Hong Kong, um, that, that people have left and there's a gap, um, and you can't immediately fill that gap. People aren't going to come rushing into Hong Kong, particularly to take up those kind of jobs, clerical jobs, this sort of thing. You know, uh, we're dependent on, on producing these people ourselves. Sounds like uh, the early 90s when lots of people left and turned out to be a good opportunity to get promoted. We're going to have to come back to that after after the news uh, as we come approach 9 o'clock here. Uh, one quick hit from our Facebook page. Mark Langston says, Nothing will return Hong Kong to normalcy until the dumb mask law is removed. And even then, who wants to visit a city under police state rule? He's on our Facebook page where you can also put your comments. Uh, today we got the weather uh, mainly cloudy, cool in the morning, sunny intervals in the afternoon. Max temperature around 19 degrees, which is quite nice. Currently 16 degrees Celsius, 73% humidity. This is Back Chat, and we'll be right back after the news. Three of those accused were overturned, the court said, because of defects in the process. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Hey, we're back on Back Chat uh, today uh, with Janice Wong and me, Andrew Work. Uh, we have two guests continuing from the first part of the show. Mark Michelson is the chairman at Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. And Vera Yun, lecturer at the Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Hong Kong. Uh, because we are talking Hong Kong's economy in 2023, something that affects us all, but not exactly. I mean, if you're an old pensioner, you know, you're not caring about economic growth. You want things to stay cheap. Uh, we've got a lot of those in Hong Kong, um, but very different situation for everybody else concerned about where the economy is going. Um, we talked a lot in the first part of the show about, you know, what's happening with tourism, opening China, reducing COVID restrictions. But I want to talk about uh, some of the bigger picture stuff like international trade. Um, you know, what are the prospects this year for people working in, say, ports and airports and infrastructure where trade flows through the city? Uh, Mark, you know, how about, what's, your, what's your take on, 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 you know, the big numbers of actual things flowing through the city? Well, you know, if, if the economy is improved, the problem is there's going to be recession probably certainly in Europe and probably in the U.S., and that affects us, right? We, <laughs> that's important for us. China and the rest of Asia, even if 
even if it's not as strong as it has been in the past, it still will be growing. Yeah. So we'll get some of that. So so a mixed picture, I would I would say, and depends on how bad the economy and economic downturn is in 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 two of our major market areas, the EU and North America, basically. Yeah, very uh, Hong Kong is a, as a as a flow through as a trading point. Yeah, so Hong Kong is really affected by um, the lower production overall China. So its um, export has dropped quite a lot. And you can see that it, it I mean, the whole uh, China geopolitical policies establish, you know, coalition with countries like, I don't know, Cambodia and then Berlin, the Middle East. So I guess it's the diff- different blocks that they are trying to build that uh, that they want to not rely that much on the Western Europe and the U.S. But I think overall they also rely on China a lot on the cheap products that China could produce. So it really depends on how much the business move out of China instead of factories outside of China that... Um, that take away China's business. If not, then um, China is actually outputting inflation to all the other countries, mm. other than um, the oil prices uh, initiated by Russia. So I think they could be quite hard on what they say, but in terms of the real impact on the economy, they're not going to cut all the um, connections with China. It's very hard to decouple. Yeah, I mean, there was a kind of an unheralded uh, major win for Hong Kong at the WTO this year where goods were allowed to continue to be labeled as made in Hong Kong, different from made in China. Uh, the, the I think it was the United States government was objecting to that and, and uh, Hong Kong won that. But it, does that present an opportunity for some, whether it's uh, repackaging, assembly or later stage manufacturing to come back to Hong Kong so they can get that made in Hong Kong label? has been an initiative to um, reindustrialize Hong Kong, saying that, you know, um, those industrial production is not that polluted anymore. They're more high-tech. They should be integrated with R&D. That, uh, and then, so, but then there's not much that is done yet. They, they want, they have such a plan, the government wants to kind of do this kind of thing so that it becomes another uh, economic engine for economic growth in Hong Kong, other than, you know, finance and real estate. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think overall China's labor cost is increasing and other Asian countries could take away some of the shares because uh, the labor cost is much cheaper and then for the low-end industry, they would have moved out. So uh, for for China, it's more about how to... um, upgrade itself in the supply chain so that it could do more high-end um, product, high-end business like technology and R&D. And, and Hong Kong is it, still treated ha- as having a special status from China, which could help import some of the technology and also do some of the R&D here. And then it could help China in terms of this. And I think it's how the Hong Kong government wants to position it, although there's nothing that has been really started in Hong Kong right now. So this is how you can secure your importance to China and so that, you know, the the mainland Chinese government would think, you know, Hong Kong is still important. Maybe there's something that we shouldn't do and that Hong Kong preserves liberty and other things. Yeah, Mark, made, made in Hong Kong? 
Yeah, well, I, first of all, the U.S. hasn't accepted that decision. They're supposed to, okay. but they haven't, so I'm not sure it's going to affect it much, and I don't know if other countries are going to do that. So They, they do like their litigation in the U.S. Yeah, well, you know, but it's the member of WTO, and WTO dispute settlement mechanism, I actually teach this, is not uh, not making much progress. Partly because of the U.S. and its failure to appoint new new people to the uh, to the to the uh, group, but at the same time, I I agree. There's a real possibility here to develop, and you know, in in terms of R and especially in tech in tech areas, there's not decoupling is very limited because China's too important to a lot of international companies, and it still is. Politics could overcome this, geopolitics and and other factors, but at the moment it it still is, including in R and D. Where there are, there are a lot of international companies that have R and D, they're diversifying to other places in Asia and, mm-hmm. and elsewhere. But at the same time, keeping a connection with China, and you know, if if uh, other factors don't overwhelm this, it's still important. But it's also important to know whether China is open, is is going to uh, uh, not have restrictions on its various industries, such as in tech right. and and other areas where, as you know, there have been some. Some some imposed restrictions, mm-hmm. and and how about the how about the airport? I mean, when is our airport going to come back? We built this shiny, brand new third runway. We're all geared up, uh, you know, formerly the world's number one cargo airport. When uh, do either 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 one of you have a strong views on where our airport's going to be over the course of the year as a driver of the economy? Well, I I I hope it comes back. As you're right, the the if you go to the airport. And people go to the airport less now, but I hope a little bit more in the near future. A lot of it's a construction zone. So the plans are basically based, I guess, on Hong Kong recovering to a greater extent. I think we'll get a good indication of that this year. And again, it depends on the restrictions that other places impose on people coming from Hong Kong and and, and China. And, you know, it, does that have a long or short term effect in a lot of other other factors? But potentially, yes. But and also, there are a lot of airlines that still don't fly here that once yeah. did. Are they going to come back? It's a good question. It's I a, think Virgin Virgin is probably Virgin's one of them. But United visible. hasn't flown from Hong Kong in three years. Yeah, and it's a major, it's a major center. You know, you think this will come back, and a lot of it will. So the opportunity is there, but um, is it going to uh, is it going to meet expectations? I think that's that's an open question. Yeah, very. You've got a, if you got an outlook on the transport sector, the airport. We also have a, a brand new high speed rail into China that I think everybody's kind of forgotten about because <laughs> it hasn't been well, used. What, what's your What's your take on the transportation sector for the year? Well, for the logistic, uh, it's a lot about um, connecting China with the rest of the world because it's um, not only about export, but also in the port. I heard that although many of the China, China cities, they have large airports, they give a lot of incentive for, you know, different of these logistics companies to set the base there. But, you know, they do choose to um, import in Hong Kong and then repack them and then import them into China because Hong Kong has no tax, has no tariffs. Mm-hmm. And this is a very, very important advantage. So they could, um, they don't choose to import directly to China because once they're in, they, they would be taxed for the whole cargo. So they would repack everything, put uh, the uh, products of the same nature in the same cargo, and then get them into China. So so that is uh, quite important. And and also um, a lot of chi- China, they like to con- uh, Chinese, they like to consume um, products. Uh, international products, and then 
how about becomes a part of importing? I don't know, like lobster or you know um, wagyu beef, that that kind of thing. So it, it also depends on uh, uh, the mainland China's uh, consumption whether the economy would grow and could afford all these. So in terms of international trade, I, I don't think it would be in a very bad position, especially if it's reopening now. And if the demand is, is there, if the business are there, then there will be business for Hong Kong as a port. Sure. You've got to bring in that Australian lobster, relabel it Canadian, and then send it up to China. Um, we haven't touched on one of the big ones. Um, I do money talk sometimes. It's a lot of talk about interest rates and what it means for property and housing. Hong Kong's favorite topic, property. Um, uh, you know, a lot of views out there on where, when, when interest rate hikes are going to are starting to slow in some places. What, what is your take on on the you know interest rates and property market for Hong Kong this year? Oh, there could be a, a surge, um, some a little bit of upbeating in in the market. I think in the first quarter or the first half of the year, because you can see that the stock market already rose, um, given uh, the news of reopening. And there would be um, some positive sentiment. However, in the long run, I guess is um, you cannot see how the city would have more population given like the current situation. And also, it depends on the economic prospect. And interest rate is a very, very uh, influential factor in terms of people's uh, decision on whether they would like to buy property. So. Um, I think my take is it, it may not be too bad, but it, it would not rise back to its, you know, historic high. So it may not fall, but it, it would not, you know, rise. So, so, I mean, people could wait and see until they have some strong signals of uh, there's a turn in the market. Very mama hoo hoo. I think I think last year was supposedly the worst year for housing starts since two thousand and eight. Mark, what's your have you got a, have you got a view on interest rates in the housing market in Hong Kong? For well, next year? yeah, it's, it's not my area of ex, but I will talk a little bit about interest rates in the sense that, yeah, well, first of all, as you know, Hong Kong's monetary policy is basically uh, is basically devised in Washington because of the link sure. to the Hong Kong dollar, and the and it seems like the Fed is going to continue tightening at least maybe a little less at times, but at least in the in the medium term. And so we're going to be restricted in that way, and so we'll have an impact mm-hmm. for sure. Now, eventually it's going to probably loosen up, but when that timing, what that timing is exactly, it's not clear. The signals aren't there quite yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so our tie, you know, of course you mentioned the PEG, and I mean the Hong Kong government's been spending a lot of money the last few years. Uh, if they continue those ways and have less of a cash reserve to defend the peg, you know, some, somebody every six months is going to say, oh, the, the peg's under, under threat, and then it never is. Um, but do you, do you see any concerns on that front that, that government spending might lead to a position where the Hong Kong government might have trouble defending the peg? Uh, I wouldn't think in the – there's still pretty substantial reserves, and although it's, yeah. it's gone down a little bit, I, I don't think so. And, but there will be all this talk, and I, as I said, I plague's as much political as it is economic. And mm-hmm. so that's important as well. And the positioning of the RMB at this point, it's still not fully convertible. All those other factors are sort of important. So the, the peg, I think, is here to stay till it isn't. And we may not know exactly when that happens. Very good. Do you want to get the final word in on uh, the, the, Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong peg to the U.S. dollar? Well, we have a strong monetary base. So given that those money is still in Hong Kong's account, it 
Okay, well, thank you. I'm going to get uh, one hit in from Paul, who uh, sent us an email uh, on the topic uh, today, just to close us out. You're, he says, your recent speaker, uh, that was George Cotherley, he's referring to in the first half of the show, uh, highlighted that he was unable to find any applicants under 50 for a position he was hiring for. There are many qualified people, including myself, who are older than 50 years old, that are perfectly capable of contributing to the job market. I certainly hope so. Uh, his statements highlight the pervasive issue of ageism in the workplace. He contributes to the problem. Paul, I, I will say in, in George's defense, I think he was just making a note of the fact that he didn't have any applicants in at 50. Uh, George himself, as I said earlier, was born, born during World War II. He might consider the f people in their 50s to be the, the kids in the room. And that is it. I'd like to thank once again our guest for the first part of the show, Mark Michelson, Chairman, Asia, CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and Vera Yun, lecturer, Faculty of Business and Economics at University of Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And we're back on Backchat. And switching gears uh, from the Hong Kong economy to something that comes out of the Hong Kong economy, and that is marine pollution. After a recent study found that up to 26 billion microplastic particles are being discharged into the ocean by sewage treatment facilities every day. Um, on the phone, we have Professor Kenneth Lung, who is director of the State Key Laboratory of Marine Pollution at the City University of Hong Kong. Good morning, Professor Lung. Hey, good morning. Professor Lung, uh, 26 billion microplastic particles sounds like a lot. What, what is the impact of all that plastic going into our oceans every day? This is an uh, estimation for the maximum discharge uh, 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 amount from our sewage. Uh, as you may know, uh, we discharge 2.8 million cubic meters uh, of sewage per day. So the volume is very huge. Uh, having said that, uh, the treatment, the wastewater treatment effectiveness in Hong Kong is quite high, uh, ranging from 80 to 98% of removal for microplastics. However, uh, even though just 10% uh, uh, remaining, uh, still triggering a quick number. For example, if we talk about only 10 uh, microplastics in one litre of water, that can channel into uh, 2.8 billion uh, microplastic particles in the uh, sewage effluent. So every day? Is, yes, every day. So the, the amount is uh, quite huge. Uh, in our study, uh, in actual fact, uh, we did uh, measurements for stormwater uh, for the first time, because the stormwater system is separate from sewage system in Hong Kong, mm. and then we don't know how much uh, uh, microplastic and mic uh, those uh, plastic sizes in the water. So then we did a comprehensive study in uh, six major drainage system in Hong Kong, and then uh, we do find uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, microplastics uh, and also the um, uh, plastic sizes in those storm drainage. Uh, as you may know, the uh, rainwater and also surface runoff being collected by this drainage to prevent flooding 
uh, when there is no treatment, uh, those contaminated rainwater or surface runoff will be discharged directly into the ocean. So we find that uh, the range of those uh, microplastic in in the uh, stormwater is about uh, uh, 0.2 to 3.2 billion uh, microplastic uh, particles there. Right, Professor Professor um, Leung, um, how would you first of all, I mean, describe the how would you describe the seriousness of uh, this problem? I mean, how does it compare to other places? So uh, this is a worldwide problem. Since uh, human uh, really dependent on the use of plastic now, I mean, uh, over the past fifty years. So then uh, we uh, some somehow we mistakenly dispose this uh, plastic. Uh, uh, garbage or debris uh, along the rivers or by this uh, waterfront. So then uh, after winning, they all wash down to the aquatic environment. And then after wear and tear under the sun and also um, the um, wave action and also the uh, uh, the river opening, and then uh, they become fragment, uh, become small in size. Uh, we call Michael's plastic, the size is uh, at or below five uh, uh, millimeter. So, uh, but in our study, we find most of them is quite small. Uh, it's uh, below 0.3 millimeter. Um, so this is not a Hong Kong problem, it's a worldwide problem. Mm. When we compare the average of the world, uh, it's about uh, 96,000 of uh, microplastic uh, um, in, in the in the system, uh, so the, the, the unit is a per liter. In in many country, uh, the microplastic is over ninety thousand. But in Hong Kong, the worst case uh, we find uh, is in uh, Tinsuway, uh, and in the stormwater in Tinsuway is twenty thousand. So compared this, uh, this is world average ninety six thousand. We are on the lower side. Uh, likewise, uh, since our tre- wastewater treatment system is good, and then uh, our value also lower than the other countries uh, in most cases. So uh, the situation in Hong Kong, uh, although is is quite good in comparison with other countries, uh, uh, our volume wastewater and stormwater are huge. Uh, even though we only have. Uh, small fraction of uh, uh, particles inside the water, uh, which can still uh, create problem to the wildlife and even human health. Mm. i give you one example. Uh, last year, we did a study to look at uh, microplastic fi- uh, fiber coming from our surgical mask. And then we explored uh, the marine organism, Cocopipo, it's a small invertebrate. And then after the exposure in uh, environmental relevant concentration, and then uh, the, uh, we observed that uh, uh, quite a few of these uh, fiber will enter into the gut and affecting their digestion and also uh, the growth rate. Since they eat less, they grow less. And then eventually, channeling into the reproductive reduction, uh, we found a 20% uh, reduction in their fecundity. So imagine uh, if we discharge this uh, microplastic continuously over time, then many such kind of organisms will suffer. 
and then uh, eventually this will have a cascade effect on the food chain. Um, so uh, then you, you can also uh, understand that uh, food, the food web, uh, then the uh, small fish eat those invertebrates, large fish eat those fish. And then uh, we also find that in many fish now in the gut, we always find microplastic. Uh, then one thing we don't know yet, uh, the even smaller size of this uh, uh, plastic, uh, we call nanoplastic, that could be present in different tissue like muscles and other organs in the fish, and uh, which may be consumed by human. Uh, in more recent studies showing that uh, in various organs in human like liver, kidney, and the lung also find with microplastic. So there is a real impact to our human uh, health as well. Yeah, we're, we're, we're starting to become made of plastics <laughs> that we're consuming through our environment, which is, which is kind of wild. Uh, and, and Professor Lung, I think people might have a misperception. You, know, you said that the microplastics come because uh, plastics that we use or dispose, they wear down in the sun and the water, and then they come through the system. But when they get to a certain size, they stop decomposing. Am I right? I mean, when, it's, when you talk about these small microorganisms consuming the plastic and it travels up the food chain, when they consume it or when they die or when they're consumed, the microplastics don't disappear at that point. They just keep concentrating in the food chain, yeah. right? They, they don't magically correct. disappear after they get eaten by an animal. Yes, you are correct. Yeah, this is a long-term problem. Uh, this is the reason why the United Nations uh, launched a campaign, a war against plastics uh, a few years ago. So this is uh, on high agenda for human society to fight against plastic. The first thing is to stop from the source. Then I hope uh, all the citizens in Hong Kong, when you use plastic, think twice. If you use it, try to use it uh, for longer time and then uh, to prevent it uh, go into uh, the system. Yeah. And then proper disposal for recycle also important. But I mean a war on plastics. I mean, so, you know, as a thought experiment, you know, I love my science fiction. If we were able, you know, imagine we were able to invent a bacteria that could consume and digest plastics. And it's great. Put it in the oceans, problem solved. But here's the science fiction part. It gets out of control and it starts dissolving all plastics. And if that happens, I mean, forget coke. We might as well just, you know, hang ourselves right away because society would completely disintegrate if, if we really got rid of plastics. I mean, but can we legitimately, can we have a war on plastics or do we just have to figure out how to make it work without poisoning so, ourselves? So you, you point out uh, one possibility to produce to, uh, bioplastic or biodegradable plastic. Uh, so far, uh, the products still rely on polymer. Uh, they may be uh, more uh, prone to biodegradation in certain conditions like uh, uh, under strong sunlight with aeration. Uh, however, if those plastics be burrow uh, or at the seabed without enough sunlight, they cannot go through the degradation. So this is the reason why uh, up to now the technology not there yet. Then we uh, we discourage the use of those kind of so-called biodegradable plastic. In actual fact, uh, uh, a study in UK they try to look at the degradation of those plastic bags. Turn out after five, ten years, they're still there intact. So um, they, and, and then most importantly, they also find them, they become microplastic. So that 
cause more problem than solution. Um, so if if those uh, products mainly made of say uh, microscopic algae or plant uh, materials, but they tend to be uh, very fragile and cannot hold uh, uh, weight, then uh, they are not really welcomed by the consumer and also the shop uh, mm-hmm. owner. Yeah. So there's still a gap in the in the development. Um, for for microplastic already in the system, what can we do? Um, I think this is uh, also a key point we should look at. In in this study, we we uh, set up the baseline. Then now the next step is how to reduce them from our environment. Uh, then we can use the new technology and also new infrastructure. I think Hong Kong government did a fantastic job. Uh, they developed uh, already two. Uh, stormwater uh, storage and collection system, uh, one in Daihandong and the other one is under the horse racing track in Happy Valley. So under the ground, they built a very, very big tank. Uh, so when the stormwater came, uh, uh, the, the surge, and then the water can be collected by this uh, very big tank. And, 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 I, and Professor, to... Professor Lug, we're going to have to hear about more of those another time as we have run out of time. Hopefully more initiatives in the future so we don't have to grow a separate organ to process the plastics in our body. Thank you again to Professor Kenneth Lung, Director of the State Key Laboratory of Marine Pollution at City University of Hong Kong. And thank you so much to you for listening, calling, and getting in touch online today, Active Today. Um, and we appreciate the participation. Today's show is produced by Yuki Tsang. Our sound man today is Tang Wing Ming. Uh, back chat tomorrow with Danny Giddings and Janice Wong. A quick hit on the weather, mainly cloudy, cool with one or two light rain patches. Uh, temperature high, about 19 degrees. And uh, we'll be back with more back chat tomorrow. Using the consumption vouchers is so easy. Vouchers are being dispersed by installments from August 7th. If you use Octopus, simply tap it to collect the vouchers. With other e-wallets, use the vouchers through the mobile app. Spend the vouchers at local retail, catering, or service outlets, and their online platforms. Check the expiry date and balance. Don't waste them. Let's spend more to boost the economy. Visit the Consumption Voucher Scheme website for more. Thank you.